there's nothing academic about building up the improvement knowledge and skills of medical residents. These are physicians, after all, and they're taking care of real patients with real problems in real hospitals and clinics every day. While some residents are entering training programs today on the heels of medical education, that's included course-level work on patient safety, patient-centered care, high reliability, and more, perhaps even taking advantage of content offered by IHI's Open School, the numbers are still relatively small and the knowledge can't be assumed. In the United States, the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education, ACGME, will begin phasing in what they're calling the next accreditation system, NAS, in July 2013. And on paper, at least, the NAS looks darn serious about making sure residents become skilled at systems thinking, system redesign, process measures, the prevention of adverse events, root cause analysis, and lots, lots more. But what's it going to take to pull these goals off the page and implement them, make them doable and realizable? We hope you'll help us think this through along with our expert guests today on this edition of WIHI. And welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We offer this program bi-weekly and for your later listening and convenience via IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. I want to thank you for your interest in today's program. Many of you are still getting on board and welcome. So we're focusing on a subject that needs to be as much a part of the healthcare improvement agenda in the United States and elsewhere as anything else, but where the difficulty of integrating improvement skills into highly evolved residency programs may be sometimes underappreciated. So that's why we have our panel assembled, and we also look forward to hearing from all of you. And international participants, do make sure to share what resonates and what's working in programs perhaps in your own countries. So let me now introduce our guests. Right across from me here is Dr. Don Goldman. He's an infectious disease specialist. He's also Senior Vice President at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, and he's responsible for, here comes the list, Don, although it's not it's not exhaustive, <laughs> fellowship training, faculty relations, IHI's Innovation Research and Evaluation Program, and several translational research and results-oriented projects, and more. He's also the principal IHI liaison to a number of strategic allies including academic and professional societies. Welcome, Don. Thank you. Kedar Mate is an internal medicine physician and is currently an assistant professor of medicine at Weill Cornell Medical College and a research fellow at Harvard Medical School's Division of Global Health Equity. In addition, Kedar serves as the clinical lead for research and development at IHI. Welcome, Kedar. Thank you, Patrick. All right, and to my left here, James Moses serves as the Director of Quality and Patient Safety for the Department of Pediatrics at the Boston Medical Center and oversees all quality improvement-related initiatives within his department. He's also the Associate Program Director for the Boston Combined Residency Program in Pediatrics at Boston Medical Center and Boston Children's Hospital. And an extra bonus, James is the Academic Advisor to IHI's Open School and and uh, that gives him an additional perspective that we'll hopefully be able to weave in and out of uh, on our program today. So welcome, James. Thanks, Matt. All right, I'm going to start off with Don. I always like to start off with Don, big picture thinking. And um, 
Don, the last time, it's not the last time you were in the studio here, but the last time you were here and we were focusing on residency training in the United States, that was January of 2011. And we were then talking about residency training and new kinds or newish work requirements, what was going on with those uh, issues having to do with time off between long shifts and the efforts to increase hours spent sleeping and resting, uh, all in an effort to improve patient safety and reduce risks associated with sleep-deprived clinicians. So that was the focus then. And I'm curious uh, how things have evolved from that particular focus. That's clearly still an issue. But what are we adding to it? And do you think that issue, uh, in a sense, has helped maybe set the table for what's come after? Well, thank, thank you, Madge. First, just point out that today we're talking mainly about physicians. Yeah. And when we talk about GME, we're talking about physicians. And we all know that this is an interprofessional uh, quest we're on. So I just want to s- set that groundwork so that nobody thinks uh, that we believe that physicians are the only people that have got to be responsive. Uh, it, it's interesting that the all of the talk about work hours was driven uh, by an understanding that there was an impact on quality and safety when you had tired uh, residents and physicians trying to deliver their care. Uh, but what wasn't asked by just focusing on that was, well, then how do we actually improve quality and safety? Now we have these well-rested people, hope, <laughs> relatively speaking. Everyone uh, agree with that? Yeah. Uh, do, do they have what yeah. it takes? Do they have the knowledge, the 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 background, the support, the alignment to actually improve quality and safety. And I think the answer is that's a, still a big gap. As we all know, uh, improvement in quality and safety in the United States has been agonizingly slow. Uh, but I think it's fair to say that uh, forces are beginning to align in such a way that the incentives and uh, and the push to actually make change is really uh, it's really increased dramatically. So, for example, uh, it, this goes from the very uh, uh, beginning of training at the medical student level all the way up through the academic medical center itself. I think we're going to see uh, different testing to uh, get into medical school, different entry requirements, different uh, curriculum focus, all again looking uh, at least to some extent at systems improvement, uh, professionalism, communication, and, and quality and safety. That's all going to be a part of the mix. Uh, and then when the students go off to academic medical centers, they're going to find a different environment where hopefully uh, residents and the faculty that supervises residents will be attuned to these issues and competent and capable. And then the academic medical center itself is going to be held accountable for quality and safety goals. If you just look at GME, let's, let's just for a moment say what are the forces that are lining up there. So, first of all, who pays for GME really in academic medical centers? Uh, Mainly CMS. Uh, I think relatively, uh, certainly reasonable, if not generous, subsidies are given to academic medical centers to train uh, future uh, physicians. And in a way, it's fair for CMS to say, well, what are they doing to actually improve quality and safety in these organizations? And uh, MedPAC has recommended actually tying uh, reimbursement to quality and safety, demonstrated quality and safety success in GME. The ACGME, as you mentioned, is really uh, 
changing how they look at what the standards are. They don't want to be trapped in the box of talking about work hours and not talking about quality and safety. They they are really dedicated to making this uh, a comprehensive package of uh, competencies that people have to have to move forward. Double AMC squarely uh, in the box of uh, ensuring that that students and residents and faculty and and, and uh, are all uh, together in the quest for quality and safety. And we could mention another uh, a number of other organizations: UHC, uh, American Hospital Association. I, I'm not going to try and list them all. It's become alphabet soup if I do that. Yeah. But I've never actually seen so much alignment and uh, commonality of purpose as we're seeing now. All right. Well, thanks, Don Goldman. So, Kate, are, are there any other drivers, uh, kind of external factors you would add to Don's list? And I think my second part is um, the, the forces are lining up. So are the programs and the participants uh, heeding the call and listening? Yeah. that's a, So I, I, I just want to, in, in many ways, agree with some of the things that Don was saying. I think that the forces are aligning uh, to increase the involvement of uh, academic medical centers and quality and safety training. Uh, a couple of things that I'd add to that. I think hospitals, academic hospitals, um, you know, uh, 20, 30 years ago were sort of exceptional institutions. You know, they were they were institutions that were different than the community institutions uh, that we, uh, that are out there. Uh, they protected time for trainees. They protected time for uh, uh, faculty members to provide clinical education. And they weren't necessarily subjected to the same pressures that we're now seeing academic centers being subjected to. So, as an example, length of stay. I mean, in my in my clinical department and division, in academic center, uh, we face the same pressures that community institutions uh, face around length of stay, prevention of adverse events, uh, non-payment from CMS for complications or adverse events that are being seen. So I think there's been a, some, uh, in some ways, a coalescing of the pressures on academic centers that make them look a little bit more like the traditional community hospitals that are out there. Another pressure, I think, that's uh, or another driver of this kind of uh, change is the presence of hospitalists. I think in the last ten hospitalists, hospitalists, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So in the last ten to fifteen years, you've seen this emergence. Uh, I think it's the rap. Uh, if I'm not wrong, it's the most rapidly growing subspecialty in, in American medicine. Uh, hospitalists live and work and breathe in the hospitals in which they uh, are employed. And they have a significant investment in trying to protect the uh, safety of patients in those institutions, trying to improve the quality of care that's delivered in those institutions, which is different than what uh, visiting – what was called the visit previously. The attending physician was called the visit. They came they came in and out of those institutions, those teaching institutions, provided their wisdom and then left. But now hospitalists are part of the institution. They're part of the safety committees, part of the quality committees. So you see these kinds of internal pressures. And I think the last one that I would mention is students themselves. I think that things like the open school, uh, which we'll hear about, I think, during this call, and I think there are probably participants on the call from the open school, uh, the open school kind of creates a bottom-up pressure. It creates demand from the students and the trainees themselves that the institutions have to respond to, I think, over time. So I think you're seeing these kind of different uh, factors playing out here. Now, on your question about um, whether or not there's been a response, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a complicated question. I'm yeah. going to spend, I think, a lot of this discussion talking about that. Right. But I'd say there is a, there has been a response. There's, there's a growing response to this. I think we're seeing more and more faculty members uh, who are expressing their interests in uh, safety and quality uh, learning. Uh, I was recently told that IHI's patient safety officer training program, if you looked at the history of the training program and who participated in the PSO course at IHI, used to be heavily driven, oriented towards nursing. Um, And over the last 
uh, five, ten years, you've seen more and more physicians joining the PSO course, learning more about this so they can go back to their institutions and teach that to their uh, clinical trainees at every level. So I think the faculty are becoming more plugged into this and demanding more uh, attention for it. And I also think that this issue of alignment, which Don was mentioning a minute ago, is is really uh, being driven in some ways by the regulatory agencies and by uh, 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 you know many of the institutions which uh, academic centers are accountable to. Uh, but you're seeing uh, organizations internally set up the mechanism to create alignment between leadership of the hospitals, of uh, the medical schools, and the GME training programs. Thanks so much, Cater. One quick follow-up. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and this may be uh, any, any single issue here, I'm sure, is another program, but what about the interaction between residents and hospitalists? I'm, I want to make sure I understand. Uh, you were talking about uh, this grouping in the hospital now feeling a very large responsibility and having a really different um, almost set of eyes and now more consistency. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly how is that influencing uh, residents? Well, I, I, I don't know the percentages yeah. in my institution, but I can tell you um, – I'll just give you an example yeah. from where I uh, mm-hmm. practice. Um, about five years ago, there was one hospitalist um, in the whole uh, department of hospital uh, in the department of medicine. So one hospitalist, and they typically took care of the indigent, uh, very poor, uninsured patients who didn't have a who didn't have a primary care doctor uh, to to take care of them when they were hospitalized. Um, since then, we now have 25 hospitalists in our division, and all of them, or the vast majority of them, teach on the clinical teaching service. And all of us, I would say the vast majority of us, really enjoy the interaction that we have with residents. So I think that uh, you know, the, 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 who the residents actually see um, on a day-to-day basis in the hospital has completely changed. It's gone from primary care physicians who came in and out of the hospital now to this group of 25 that they see all the time. That's really interesting. So James, maybe that's, James Moses, that's maybe a good segue for you. Is that, does that sound a little bit like where, where you are over at Boston Medical Center? Yeah, so yeah. Um, between Boston Children's Hospital and Boston Medical Center, it's definitely seen a similar growth in the hospitalists, and, and I'm also a hospitalist too. And I, I was just going to add to what Kadar said, which is not only are they more centrally involved in education, um, but it's the same group of physicians that tend to be involved in quality and safety-related initiatives. And so you have this kind of culmination of experience where uh, quality and safety, uh, the agenda for quality and safety uh, education is moving forward, um, and I think the hospitals are going to play a central role in that education, uh, especially at the residency level. Mm-hmm. So, um, and um, so I guess what I'd love to ask you is, uh, James, um, is what um, kinds of things do you see at the in the residency program that you think almost illustrate some of the things that Kate R um, and Don are talking about, and then maybe we can talk just for a few minutes about the open school and the resident participation yeah. in that. Be- before we do that, oh, please, imagine, as you know, when you invite me, I, oh, in, yeah, I interrupt yeah. the flow I say and this totally disrupt. It's a freewheeling program, yeah. and anyone should jump I just in. want to make a comment because yeah. uh, we talk a lot in uh, the quality and safety world about waste. Yeah. And when you think about it, what could be more wasteful than having these uh, scores of residents in a hospital doing much of the real work Mm -hmm. on the ground and not 
utilizing them in the hospital's uh, approach to quality and safety. I mean, that to me is total waste. And uh, we found time and time again in our innovation work, and Kadar knows this well because he did a lot of the phoning, that often the C-suite uh, does not even know that the residents are engaged in quality and safety work. And even if they do, that quality and safety work may be totally unconnected to the goals of the hospital. So that's pure waste to have a uh, cadre of people in the hospital and you're not utilizing them to advance those goals. And then uh, if we don't use the hospitalists, who after all are, uh, and I hate military analogies, but it's basically an army of people now. There are 30 or 40,000 of them in the country, I think is the latest figure I heard. And and they're uh, in every medical hospital, uh, academic medical center, I know about that it's pure waste not to train them up and get them involved in catalyzing this uh, movement so uh, I don't like to see waste mm-hmm. I'm sure many people would share Kater, you want to say something yeah I just wanted to build on that point we you know uh, Don was referring to the innovation process that we uh, we did a little while ago where we went and examined uh, case studies if you will of institutions that were either facing significant barriers to integrating quality and safety training in their institution or having successes you know standout examples of doing this really well and one of the things I would I say in one of our interviews, we, we spoke to somebody, an innovator, a GME program leader, who was creating all this. I mean, you talk to the GME program leaders. Uh, these are the, the medical educators yeah. at the front lines. They're the ones that have all these innovative concepts around how to teach their residents about quality and safety. And it was amazing to me to hear that when she presented that information to the chief quality officer, forget about the chief executive or chief operating or chief medical officer, the chief quality officer of her institution, the chief quality officer said, this is disconnected from the agenda of the institution, so it means nothing. So all these incredibly exciting, innovative projects that were saving the hospital money, providing value to patients at the front lines of care that the residents were carrying out, uh, was sort of dismissed. Uh, And it's just this example of how disconnected and misaligned or non-aligned some of these things can really be at the front lines. Well, we're going to thank you, Kadar, and um, both. And um, I'm going to circle back to that in just a moment, some of these misalignment issues, and maybe we'll also tee that up to some of the people who are with us today of their ideas. But back to James and talk a little bit about what's going on. Yeah, it's actually, to tell you the truth, what Kadar just said is a perfect segue because I think that, um, you know, in my role as as an associate program director who's in charge of quality improvement and safety education for my residency, it's exactly that disconnect um, that exists. And uh, there's a real power be- behind the message that John, uh, that Don just uh, uh, stated, which is here we have residents who um, can be very active, activated around improving quality and improving care. And, you know, the thing about residents is when you go from medical school to residency, you go from the theoretical to the applied. And so um, there's this moment that happens in residency education where you yourself become part of the care system. And um, historically, they have been completely disempowered from their seeing the deficiencies of a care system and uh, then being able to have the skills to improve it. And what the potential uh, that exists with quality improvement education is we can take the people who are on the front lines. If you take a look at MDs and who deliver care at the bedside the most, it's the residents. And they need to be put in a position that they can actually direct the improvement in care and be part of a hospital priority uh, in in that sense. Um, And so I think the the potential that exists as the ACGME and the AMC and these bodies get, get this kind of general concept um, 
that they can put pressure on the C-suite um, that can at least help folks like me on the front lines who's, who really kind of are trying to get the residents to understand the importance and relevance of this, but who need help to kind of convince my local hospital and the, leader, the leadership in that hospital about the importance of residents in quality improvement. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that's really, really important. And I, I think it's not just the hospital leadership that needs to be um, thought of in this instance, but it's also residency leadership. So, um, you know, I'm an associate program director and I have two uh, program directors between both hospitals. Um, and a lot of times quality improvement and, and safety is seen as a secondary or tertiary priority, that the, especially with the, the, um, the new changes that the ACGME is coming down with, there are definitely uh, different priorities that seem to be uh, given higher priority at that level. Um, and quality and safety sometimes can be put on the back burner uh, in order to kind of make sure that the other RSC requirements are becoming the focus. What are some of the ones that people might perceive as somehow crowding out uh, yeah. patient safety? I, I don't mean to put you on the spot. Yeah, no. I'm just curious um, what... So, so there's a yeah. big focus um, with the new ACGME changes that are coming down on individualized curriculum, that somehow there now has to be six months in residency training, at least for pediatrics, um, that is dedicated to uh, freeing up space within the residency uh, uh, curriculum to allow for individual pursuits. And, um, and that's, that's a large percentage of the time that's dedicated to residency training. And, uh, and here I am as doing a longitudinal uh, quality improvement curriculum, and all of a sudden there's going to be these months that have to be found in the 36 months of pediatric training um, for something else. And uh, you know, what is going to, what, how is quality improvement education going to fit into that change? It's a really large change, and I, I think it's really important. Um, but what hasn't been flushed out to, in any detail is how are um, uh, the current kind of educational uh, priorities going to fit into this new model? Mm-hmm. Um, Yeah. Don, um, I'm going to just bring you in for a quick second here. Is this the, and then I'm going to ask James to talk a little bit about what's going on with the open school and residents. Is this the kind of thing, I know IHI is working with ACGME and many other associations as you referenced. Is this the kind of thing that is sort of on the agenda kind of to look at things that are creating almost either or situations or um, it's true, there's only so many, you know, hours in the day and you know, well, right, yeah. and one way to look at this is an intractable barrier. There are a lot of, uh, and I'll put it in quotes, intractable barriers. Another one is if you want to have interprofessional experiential learning and residents and nurses operate on different schedules, how do you get them together to have interprofessional learning? Or if you're looking at the primary care setting, how do you have enough continuity for a resident in a primary care setting to actually be part of quality improvement? These are all quote-unquote intractable barriers, but here's a way to look at it. So let's go back to medical school for a second. So you can teach, uh, sorry, I'm going to rattle on here a bit, Madge, but uh, There's no (laughs) An intractable barrier to getting quality and safety into medical school education is that the guy teaching about the islet cell needs his, uh, you know, so many credit hours to teach about the islet cell and, and, and diabetes. Uh, what if that curriculum, that piece of the curriculum were to say, the reason we're studying the islet cell and we're so hung up on uh, what the metabolic pathways are that lead to diabetes and, and, and di- adult onset uh, diabetes is that um, there's a problem in the country. 
that the rate of obesity in the United States is such and such, that it's leading to earlier earlier onset of adult onset diabetes now in children. And, and so that's the context in which we're working. And you build it into the curriculum so it's all part of the same thing. And I would say that this, the, the same secret uh, holds true in residency medical education. There shouldn't be very much. Now we're going to learn about the dose of a drug, and now we're going to learn about uh, research. It, this can be integrated in a creative way. It just takes a different mindset on the part of faculty who, frankly, right now neither have the capability in general of teaching quality and safety, let alone in real time in an experiential setting. And secondly, maybe in, in their own self-interest to keep hammering away at the narrow niche that they're going to be known for. So I'm a diabetologist, and I've got to publish eight papers in science on the on the diabetes. Well, that's okay, but it's not going to wash anymore. Mm-hmm. That's not the kind of experiential learning that we're going to have to be flexible enough to provide. All right. Well, Don always tees up things that you can react to, and we hope that you will in just a few minutes. Thanks, Don. Um, I'm going to go back to you now, James, and just talk about whether it's uh, we've aligned it all perfectly or not. What is the open school offering now uh, to residents that, at the very least, is sort of moving this thing uh, forward? We're moving the plates closer together anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and just to reiterate uh, yeah. what the open school is, I think, uh, sure. is a starting point. So, um, for those that don't know that are on the call, the open school is really this uh, online kind of community uh, that's interprofessional. So, it's not just uh, Dr. Base, but it's basically um, where people can come together to learn quality and safety and um, and form really community and networks uh, across the world uh, in order to get this done. So um, for the residents specifically, I, I think that there are a number of exciting kind of developments that the Open School has that I think can really engage the resident community. So right now we have uh, over 8,000 residents um, worldwide who um, have have taken at least um uh, who have come to the site but and have registered, and over 80% of them have, have taken at least one course. Um, and what we can offer is for the faculty who might not have all the skills in quality improvement or safety, um, and for the residents who are really wanting to engage in this work, they can come to the site and go through the modules to learn these skills and apply them locally. Um, to augment that, uh, that part of the open school, we are coming out this fall um, with actually a, a QI practicum that that allows folks to learn QI and then apply it uh, in a structured way with support from a local faculty advisor. But with um, uh, uh, the module we have uh, on the open school kind of directing that experience so that it can be successful. Um, And I think another space that we're getting into is uh, the fact that this is online um, and therefore can also be mobile. Um, So we know that residents are busy. We know that uh, finding time in residency training in order to kind of learn the theory behind quality improvement and uh, getting to the point of being able to apply it, um, it that historically that, that happens in didactic lectures at noon conference or morning conference. Uh, and what we've created is a, a really a mobile app and online community where people can actually learn this on the go. Uh, this can be learned um, in, in the hours when residents are not in the hospital, that this education can kind of follow them where they're at. 
so uh, I, I really feel like we're, uh, we're actually filling a, a, a useful niche for residency education and quality improvement and safety. Um, I think that this is, can be a resource also for faculty um, who are trying to figure this out. What is it that residents really need to know from a quality improvement and safety standpoint? And uh, you know, these are educational modules that can be used um, in any environment to teach residents how to get this done. Thanks, James, and thanks, uh, John, also for the nice slides and just various screenshots here just to give you some idea of what you can find. You can find the IHI Open School right off uh, the homepage of IHI.org. Kadar, uh, before we go to chat, let me just ask you, um, you're talking about content that can be very, very helpful to faculty. What else do faculty need? What else are we going to need to do to kind of build up even an army of uh, faculty, not unlike the hospitalists, uh, to be kind of in this pipeline um, uh, helping with this whole effort. Yeah. Thanks for that question, Madge. I think, you know, this was, in fact, the focus of the uh, research and development effort that we uh, undertook to do uh, several months ago now. Uh, but I think there's a couple of different dimensions. I'll, I'll mention three, uh, or four, rather, I'll, I'll speak about. So one is around the actual professional development opportunities. So I think the open school uh, begins the process of uh, of this, you know, uh, with the trainees themselves, and it also presents an opportunity for faculty to potentially go onto the site and learn aspects of quality and safety training. There are lots of other different ways that faculty can become capable, and I think programs need to, and institutions need to incentivize or create opportunities for their faculty to go about developing professionally in that manner. Now, in in order for them to take advantage of those things, I think there's got to be some sort of uh, pathway, if you will, in the career uh, of a faculty member. Uh, that connects the training opportunity to their personal and professional priorities. So, you know, promotion systems have to start to uh, take into account the possibility of uh, advancing in an academic environment uh, based on the participation of a faculty member in either the actual conduct of improvement themselves or mentorship of students and trainees to do the conduct of improvement. So I think uh, promotion systems need to be developed. And there are uh, institutions we found in our survey uh, that are doing this. There's a, a program at Cincinnati Children's Hospital uh, that has a double track, not just for academic uh, medical faculty, but also for their operational staff to get promoted through various levels of uh, professorship um, who are doing work around quality and safety. So I think promotions and thinking about career pathway is also important. Mm -hmm. the, the third dimension, I'd say, is around institutional uh, resources. So as they're, as they're, we move towards increasing alignment between what the institution wants to prioritize in terms of quality and safety work and what the trainees are doing and what the faculty are coaching them to do, uh, we have to make institutional resources available to graduate medical education programs and to faculty members that are mentoring students to do this work. So uh, just a really clear example about that to make that real, you know, if, if, if a, if a a trainee-led project uh, is focused around uh, reducing adverse events related to medication error, um, but the computer systems in the hospital don't provide the trainee with any of the data that's needed to actually do this work, then that program can never succeed. You know, the improvement project can't work. But if the institution uh, supports that, creates the data availability, uh, allows the faculty member and the student to, or the trainee to uh, uh, take advantage of the existing data systems that are present in the institution, you know, you could have a potentially very successful and very important project for the, for the institution. And the last thing is simply time. Yeah. You know, I think uh, faculty members need uh, time in their uh, lives to do this work. Uh, they need a percentage of their time that 
the department invests in to do this. I mean, that's just there's there, clinical clinicians are busy, mm-hmm. um, and to have the time to do this and to do it right, I think uh, requires some investment on the part of the institution. I think it'll pay off, right? Uh, but I, I think that remains to be proven um, uh, through uh, uh, you know research and analysis. Thanks, Kadar. One more very quick question, Don, and then we're definitely going to open things up. So we started off you talking about sort of the various powers and forces out there. Are, are they, are those powers, particularly payers, uh, are they in any mood to start better aligning what they're reimbursing for and sort of tying funds to the kind of agenda people are laying out here? Well, you know, it depends on the payer. I think CMS is actively considering uh, how to tie performance in this area to uh, reimbursement for GME expense. And we'll see how that goes. Obviously, there are a lot of uh, issues around CMS and, mm-hmm. and payment in the United States, and things are a bit in play. But I, I know that that's on the agenda. As far as other payers are concerned, I think they're still primarily focusing their energies on the academic medical center or on institutions in general and relying on the institution to figure out how to leverage uh, this vast engine of change called the students and residents and, and faculty yeah. uh, that work at, within their walls. And that uh, just hasn't been done yet. I, I will say, when, I want to just readdress for one second mm-hmm. this issue about creating the time. Uh, you know, I always worry a little bit when we tell people that they go off and get some book learning or some podcast learning or they do the open school modules unless it's really connected to the work because this stuff enters the mind and immediately seeps out the fingers unless it's applied. And that's why I think the practicum uh, is so important. But, But in my experience, all the modules in the world and all the book learning in the world is no substitute for having a faculty member in hopefully in partnership with a nurse. Uh, bring the quality improvement methodology to the work at hand. There's nothing esoteric really uh, about a fishbone diagram. It's just looking at cause and effect and plumbing the experiential knowledge and, and evidence to look at a problem. There's nothing really magical about a PDSA cycle. It's best demonstrated in real time with real work, uh, and then people can go and get the deeper knowledge. So I think sometimes we approach it backward. If only we had five days to teach quality, everything would change. I, I, I actually think that's a not the right approach. All right. Well, plenty of stuff to uh, kind of hang your own thinking on, we hope. Uh, thanks, everyone, who's joined us on this WIHI talking about uh, changes in residency and um, we very much uh, welcome now your thoughts and comments. A few people have already uh, slid them in, uh, John, but why don't you just make sure everyone knows how to ask a question or make a comment via chat. Yeah, on the chat window, just make sure that you uh, click send to all participants. It's right above the uh, the text box, and that way everybody here in the studio and everybody in the chat itself can hear you All right. or read you. Okay, very good. And a reminder, uh, if you're um, logged into the computer today, you can uh, take this uh, chat transcript with you, and if you just happen to be joining by phone, you can request it by uh, emailing info at IHI.org. All right, so uh, some nice uh, little shout-outs for WIHI and our focusing on that, and some hellos from students in the open school, which is great. Um, 
Cindy Smith had asked, she was one of the first out to ask if we could address some of the specific requirements for quality participation, let me get that word out, quality participation required by ACGME and perhaps some examples. So I'm not quite sure. There's things that are on there now and then things that are coming uh, from um, as part of the 2013. Um, Perhaps we could just tick off a few things uh, that are there. I was looking at a very handy-dandy New England Journal of Medicine special report that came out in February 2012. I don't know if there, I, I assume if people go on the ACGME website, you can also find some information. But any kind of key things anybody might want to call out in terms of things that really represent breakthroughs at all in terms of quality? Yeah, I can step in. Okay, in sir, uh, James. So, Lisa, with the current requirements, um, that it's required basically for residents to systematically analyze a quality problem and uh, address a quality problem. Uh, but it's not uh, specified what methodology is to be used in order to do that, but it is suggested that PDSAs could be an example of what to address. Um, I think there's a lot of confusion as to what exactly uh, are the activities that would um, kind of qualify to meet that requirement Um, and uh, further definition I think is going to come with the next accreditation uh, system Um, but in essence I think from an ACGME standpoint uh, the current residencies and even fellowships in that matter are working under the understanding that a quality improvement project uh, where residents and fellows are working to actually improve a process is the requirement Um, and that's how I would I would define it okay I would just one or two things that I'd add to that. Um, I think the, the the clear visit program, so the ACGME has established this visit program led by Kevin Wise, um, and uh, this the clear visit program stands for clinical uh, learning environment review. These are visits that the ACGME is going to be making uh, to sites to try to examine the role of uh, quality and safety training in the uh, GME process. Um, and in, in, in that, I think that program in, in many ways is uh, trying to encourage uh, the uh, participation of trainees and faculty members in the quality and safety training uh, uh, programming, and so I think that that's one another very important step that's coming at us very very soon, uh, already in alpha and beta tests uh, in the institutions, and so we're going to be seeing I think increasingly more of of that kind of thing happening. And what they're going to be looking for I think in those visits is a combination I mean a combination of things, uh, but one of the things that they're going to be looking for is not only just evidence of programming at the uh, with the residents and the faculty as well but also some sense of uh, alignment as we've been talking about in this between what the institution prioritizes and uh, what the residents and, and faculty members are actually doing in their in their uh, improvement projects so I think that's another key element of this the other thing I just say is uh, along with this ACGME issue that uh, Cindy was asking about is that the in that article that you were describing Madge, uh uh, Tom Naska, the chief executive of ACGME, describes how they're moving away from the biopsy model and moving towards a more regular review of programs. So what used to be a, you know, every five to six years, the ACGME would turn up and you'd, you know, dust off your shelves and make everything look nice for, for the, you know, the day that they were there or a couple days that they were there. You know, this is now going to change. and We're moving towards a, or at least the plan is to move towards a regular annual review of data, of 
of what's going on in the institution. So I think the pressure on residency training programs to meet a more regular uh, form of review is going to be uh, very present. Okay, yeah, thanks. And I'd just like to say one thing about this CLEAR program, which is spelled C-L-E-R, not uh, CLEAR like the sky. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think that ACGME has taken a really good approach to this. This is a learning program. They're not going in with a, a blunt uh, um, mm-hmm. gavel and saying, all right, we're now going to judge you. They're saying, wow, there's a lot to learn here. They're aware, uh, obviously, of IHI's innovation work where we found really a lot of innovation but not real spread of innovation or systematic uptake of innovation. So they're out there doing exactly the right thing. They're trying to learn what the situation is, trying to spot innovations and trying to have a dialogue with academic medical centers rather than just saying, okay, guys, you got these standards, adhere to them. I think it's a really smart approach. That's really, really interesting. Um, I love, as always on chat, it's great when all of you start uh, being able to chat with one another and share some of your own resources. Ashley, thank you for an article that you wrote about a project on a residency curriculum, and that's um, we'll, we'll also uh, check into that as well. Uh, I want to get to Jennifer Murphy's question, and she says, do you have any suggestions on how to start to review your current residency curriculum and work with program directors to more explicitly address quality? And safety into the curriculum, James. Yeah, this, he's Wait, got a big me on smile the spot on, on that one. <laughs> okay. um, yeah. So uh, it's a great question, and um, I think the first the first thing that you have to take a look at is who are the people who can be um, your experts in quality improvement and safety, um, and can you engage them to help teach the residents um, to build that space? Um, so I, I think the ACGME is doing a great job at uh, making sure that, from a residency standpoint, residency leadership understands that there's a role for quality and safety education to play. Um, And uh, having and identifying your local experts who can help you with that education, I think, is a great first step. Okay. Interesting comment. Thank you. Um, Interesting comment here. Marcella is saying, how do you address the fact that residents are ahead uh, of faculty in QI learning? Faculty need to act as mentors and coaches. We have many residents ahead of the curve. You know, I think this is a very common problem. I think uh, the fact of the matter is that in many places, uh, as I was saying before, the demand is actually coming from the students and residents right. to get this training um, to begin with and, and not necessarily from the faculty themselves. So in many places, I think you face this problem of having a, a student population or a resident population that's been through the open school modules and you know uh, been around uh, uh, various different uh, forms of thinking about quality and safety and really prioritizing that. And the faculty are catching up to them. But I don't think this is a, a, a problem. You know, I think that the faculty, you know, we're all, if you're, if you're a faculty member at an academic institution, you're in a learning institution. You know, part of your objective is to be uh, a, a lifelong learner. Um, and I think, you know, the, the fact of the matter is that, uh, you know, we're going to learn alongside of the clinical trainees uh, for the most part. We talked to, in the R&D uh, project that we did, we talked to a, a group from Wayne State University uh, who are now four or five years on from their, from beginning this, but five years ago, 
the students and residents were as capable and as knowledgeable about QI and, and safety work as the faculty members, but they all went through a program of study together. And at the end of the day, you know, your faculty become more and more knowledgeable and skilled in this process. So I, I don't see that as a problem, uh, despite the fact that you start out at different places right. in the beginning. Don? Well, there, it, I'm not saying this is a problem, but there is a reality, and I'm not sure how long it will take to change this, and it may prove to be relatively difficult to change. Uh, I think hospitalist programs are in the vanguard here. I, I think by nature it's a new specialty. Uh, I, I don't even know what the boards are in hospital medicine. Are there boards now, Kadar? <laughs> I, mean, I don't know. I mean, but it's new, right? It's a new kid on the block. It has a lot to prove, and it's probably going to prove itself in pragmatic uh, things like improving quality and publishing in that arena. After all, that's why hospitals were invented in the first place. Uh, when you get to other areas of the um, medical establishment, uh, there are other mindsets. Uh, you know, there are division chiefs and department heads whose sole goal right now is still, did you publish in the New England Journal or JAMA or Science or Nature? And they have may have little tolerance for distraction of something like quality, safety, cost, medication, reconciliation. And it's real hard to gain traction. So in a lot of programs, you'll find these folks who are often junior who are re- really bought into this, and they're just trying to get an edge up, and they're trying to get their department chair. So some leadership here uh, would be helpful. And I, I do think the uh, ACGME program and the emphasis of AAMC and other organizations is going to start putting pressure on those folks uh, to think a little differently. A junior, just because not, even before you said that, we have a comment from somebody who was wondering uh, if you have some advice. Um, how would you suggest that a junior faculty member develop expertise in quality improvement and patient safety? Um, I'm not sure what we've been talking about it needs to be necessarily so tailored to junior your faculty member, but I suppose there are particular dynamics at work there. I don't know if either one of you has any thoughts on that. So uh, so first and foremost, I think the open school remains a resource uh, yeah. for every level of learner, whether you're a professional or a, a professional student. Um, and I think it's getting a basic understanding of quality improvement and patient safety, uh, and that's what the open school can really do. Um, I think that there are other training programs that are out there that really can build the skill in, the, in these areas, and IHI has those offerings as well, whether that's the patient safety uh, uh, course that they do or um, even the improvement advisor. Uh, program that is run out of here, and um, the uh, there are other programs I think run by the Society Hospital of Medicine as well as Intermountain Healthcare that people can look at as well. Yeah, yeah I was yeah. going to say uh, the same. Yeah. I think there's there's professional development opportunities that you can take advantage of that are extramural, uh, but you should also look within your institution because uh, I found in fact that there are a number of uh, uh, academic organizations that have either intramural. Uh, quality and safety training programs for uh, often for senior nursing staff or senior medical staff uh, that you can take advantage of that may be very local to you and won't cost you anything or cost very little to the department or division. Um, so if, if some of the you know fees for some of these things can be quite high, so if, it, if you can't find something that's extramurally fund that's outside of your institution that you need to go find funding for, there's probably something within your institution that you can achieve some training on. Thanks. Yeah, I want to speak directly to all the junior faculty out there who are troubled. <laughs> Listen up. Uh, so... I have got some history here and a, and a, and a um, path forward based on my experience. You've been junior in your time. I've been junior in my time. But, you know, infection control, hospital epidemiology yeah. was an unknown discipline when I got 
busy in my career. And uh, every one of these academic medical centers now has a hospital epidemiologist uh, and um, perhaps an antibiotic steward captain who are physicians. And those folks have no trouble getting supported in time to pursue that essential aspect of patient safety and quality. Well, how did that happen? It's because it became a requirement that hospitals demonstrate infection control proficiency and that there be physicians involved. And so here's the department chair, and for example, uh, in some department I may have been a part of before, who said, well, that's a pain in the neck. Why doesn't Goldman do that? And so Goldman went off and did it uh, and uh, developed a, uh, an academic aspect to that and ended up getting promoted doing it. I think quality in general is at the same place. There are a lot of folks out there who would rather continue their work on uh, the islet cell, and that, that, that's great. Uh, but uh, there are young people willing to pick up that uh, mantle and to run with it. The, the trick is going to be to convince both the chief and you junior faculty folks out there that there's an academic path forward. And I do believe it's possible to do quality improvement with some rigor. Uh, some journals now have quality sections. The, my, the journal I'm associated on, Clinical Infectious Disease, has a quality section. Pediatrics, the journal, has a quality section. They're the Squire guidelines. We ought to put that citation up there, match for sure. people. Okay. There is a way to do this well and to get academic credit for it, uh, and I think that's uh, how this field's going to evolve. So you junior folks out there, do not despair. Uh, remember, you're going to be needed by your snarky division chief who doesn't see the value in this yet. Okay, thank you very much. Um, I do want to tell you that, Amal, we see your question about the fellowship program being made uh, available through online participation for those of you who are overseas. It's duly noted. It's not exactly the subject of our program today, but uh, we'll make sure Don uh, sees that as the dean of our fellowship programs here at IHI. This is um, has to do with folks who uh, are overseas and may not be able to make a 12-month commitment to being here at IHI. Yeah, well, we're actually working on an alternative oh, model, yeah. not to replace this model. I yeah. hope some of you will consider spending uh, a year with us and becoming uh, leaders in quality and safety. Uh, but we are working on an alternative model that will require much less time away and be much more virtual and still uh, have some of the benefits of the program. It won't be quite the immersion, but I, I think uh, we'll come up with something that you'll find appealing. Okay, great. I also don't want to forget, Jane had a question very early on, and maybe, uh, James, you might be able to answer this, or Don. Don't several Boston-area teaching hospitals currently offer residents experiential time in their quality and patient safety divisions? I'm going to rely on uh, experts here. <laughs> I can't really say with yeah. confidence. I, I, I know what happens at the Boston Children's Hospital because that's in essence where I have my my uh, my residency quality improvement curriculum. And, and um, you know, we have a – the patient safety program at Boston Children's Hospital supports our quality improvement curriculum. Um, it, they allow um, us to have some resources that uh, residents can use to have a, a student or a, um, an RA help help them kind of do the data collection and measurement part to their quality improvement projects. Um, and we have support basically built into our residency uh, structure that basically allows residents once a month to basically uh, be protected from clinical responsibilities to work on their projects and learn quality improvement safety. But the other Boston area teaching programs I can't really speak to for sure. 
I know that the Beth Israel um, has a month-long, a, a three- to four-week-long rotation uh, for its residents that they go through the uh, quality and safety uh, program within the institution. They all sort of take, tackle in individual projects. And I think that's a really good way. That's an example of a really good way of uh, creating this kind of capability, learning from the best within your institution about how to do this stuff, and uh, also working together with the institution's objectives because they're – steeped in the whatever the institution is working on with respect to quality and safety. So I think that idea of creating a safety rotation that merges with what the hospital is working on with quality and safety is a really good way of yoking these things together. And another one that I've heard, by the way, is the idea of a quality chief. So this is an idea that we've, we saw a lot of times around the, across many institutions uh, getting to a question uh, mm-hmm. from earlier about how to do this. Yeah. Uh, a quality chief is another good uh, way of doing this. You have a chief resident Uh, that's focused primarily on spreading quality and safety kind of education throughout the residency training program. And here's a really interesting idea that we got from one of the institutions we worked with. It jointly funded by the department that's uh, doing uh, the work, Department of Medicine in this case, and the institution. So by its nature, the chief has uh, essentially has to merge the priorities of the institution with the the work of the division. Okay, really interesting. Don? There's an important comment here, and I feel negligent for not having brought this up because there's such a exemplar. This is from uh, Marcella, uh, who's uh, reminding us that AIAMC, the Association for Independent Academical Medical Centers, is really in the forefront here. They've been running a collaborative now uh, for several years. It's now in its uh, third wave, and this is really focused on aligning the organizations with the experiential learning of residents and faculty, Uh, and it's very well worth looking up the AIAMC.org website. So, sorry, Marcella, for not having uh, remembered that. Okay, well, it's there now, and it's in the chat log, and we'll be uh, including that. Uh, also, you'll be able to find it online as well. Um, I want to ask a question um, that's sort of occurring to me as I'm listening to all of you and sort of the examples that you're mentioning. And Don and Kadar, you talked about sort of doing some of this R&D. Um, is there any effort either here at IHI or amongst some of the various entities working on these issues to begin to kind of gather up best practices, best models, some of what uh, it, we're, we're seeing? So if somebody was saying, I want to get going on this in my organization, what's out there? Who should I learn from on this? Yeah, that, that, Madge, that's exactly the focus of the R&D effort that we yeah. uh, conducted some time ago was to try to find best practices, examples of where faculty are becoming competent and capable of spreading this type of knowledge and where institutions are generating the kind of aligned uh, programming and quality and safety throughout uh, the residency programs that are hosted in that institution. So we found several different ways of doing that. We created driver diagrams to help uh, encourage faculty to do this, to try to uh, engage with the residents, to try to engage the institutional leaders, as well as a number of case studies of institutions that are getting ingredients of it right. Right. Um, and so we've got a, a lot of that material. Uh, we can make it available to anybody that's interested in it. Okay. Um, and We haven't published it yet. Or it's not published, posted, uh, but yeah. it's an R&D report. It's an R&D use. report that yeah. it would be could be shared with people. Uh, I'm, I'm certain that we could. Okay. And there's one other thing yeah. I just want to say, because the second phase of that work, uh, which we haven't really talked about here, yeah. is uh, what happens in the ambulatory setting. So yeah. while, while that the initial phase of the work focused on the inpatient setting, the second phase of the work, which is happening right now, yeah. is how do we improve, how do we uh, teach 
teach quality and safety principles to the disciplines that focus on ambulatory care. Um, so that's a that's another phase of activity. And again, there's a set of best practices around that, and a set of different pressures: the patient-centered medical home, right. uh, the capitated payments, the, the ACO type concepts that are coming into play. There are different pressures on that side of the health of the health system that are affecting uh, the future of what those professionals. So you're work. in the middle of that work. So right we're in now. the middle of that work. That'll right. be done at the end of the month. Okay, that's great. Well, hopefully, if it really feels okay, if people can appreciate it, it's R and D work. It's kind of early iterations of things, and what was captured. But if it's okay with everyone, maybe we can post this to our resources. Um, John, why don't you just, uh, we'll throw up the slide, uh, just a reminder to people about our forum coming up um, and uh, some of the ways in which we hope and try and make this a very meaningful experience for residents, students, and faculty. Yeah, we've talked a lot today about IHI's open school and residents and the changing face of medical education. Uh, but the best place to learn about uh, that and experience the important changes happening in healthcare is the National Forum, which is being held this year, December 9th through 12th in Orlando. And IHI's National Forum is a great place for students, residents, and all health professionals to interact with and learn from peers, colleagues, and experts across the continuum of healthcare improvement. Uh, information about scholarships is up on the screen right now and support um, and you can check that out a little bit more by visiting IHI.org backslash IHI forum or emailing info at IHI.org Thanks, John. And every year at the forum, coming up in December, sooner than we uh, perhaps want to think sometimes, because uh, here comes winter, um, there, there is a growing uh, number of students and residents there uh, and faculty all very, very concerned about the future of um, medicine, nursing, pharmacy, health administration. Everybody is now part of a much more collaborative effort, and that we hope uh, and do believe is the future of healthcare. And in many ways, you see it in how the students operate. Uh, when they're all together. Um, I really, I guess we're getting pretty close to the end here. Um, I'm just going to throw out one more question. When you mentioned ambulatory care, I'm curious, uh, given that one of the recurring stories in the news is always, what are we going to do about the shortage of primary care physicians? There aren't enough primary care physicians. Uh, somehow the pay incentives aren't right. The, this is not right, etc. Do you feel that any of the work that's going on right now uh, around quality and safety and improvement in any way way uh, makes, it can sort of set anything else in motion in terms of the interest in, in primary care. I don't know if those are hard worlds to bring together in terms of thinking and motivation, but I'll throw that at you, Kadar. <laughs> you know, I think there there. There's a the reason that we have such a, a dearth of primary care physicians is, is complicated, and I think some part of this uh, can be uh, brought about through sort of better mentorship in primary care, and perhaps uh, by by training people in quality and safety and thinking about some of these things, changing payment models around primary care, we can actually start to generate more interest in the field. It's a great organization, uh, Primary Care Progress. Uh, based here in Boston that was initially started by, I think, some residents as well as some junior faculty that are working on exactly this issue, trying to connect the dots around how we can encourage better mentorship in primary care, provide role models for this work, and uh, future opportunities for, for people to connect better with primary care. Okay, sounds good. All right, I think, uh, you know, we're, we're wrapping up. We're right at the top of the hour. Parting words, Dr. Goldman? Well, I, I have a request to everybody yeah. who's still yeah. on, and you know how they begin to drop off at the <laughs> very last moment here. Yeah. Uh, but we're hungry yeah. for great new ideas or best 
practices. The, the, this, the best way forward has not yet been discovered. Okay. At least that, that's our feeling. So any of you out there who are willing to share, we, we have a big ear open for uh, any new great ideas. All right. Well, you can send those ideas to info at IHI.org, um, you know, immediately following or in the days ahead and reference this WIHI program today, and they'll be sure to forward it on to me and I can distribute with our guests here. Um, and we will do our best, actually, to post uh, the, the early report um, about some of the best practices, and it sounds like there's more to come, so that's great. So big thank you to James Moses, uh, Dr. Kedar Mate, everybody's a physician here, by the way, Dr. Don Goldman, um, and all of you who joined today, your very engaged audience really appreciate it. Um, you can check out our Facebook page after the show today if you'd like. Uh, Jane Rossner always uh, adds a comment or two, and if you do some tweeting, make sure to put at IHI in it as well. Next up on WIHI, next week we've got some back-to-back shows coming up. Open notes, uh, doctors and patients on the same page. This is a fascinating project uh, looking at uh, great things, you know, the ways in which great things can happen when the physician notes are available to patients and providers alike. So that's our focus uh, next week, and we're going to learn about a really interesting study, the results of which were recently published in Annals. A reminder, when you get off the program today, you can download the chat. Thank you for filling out a brief survey. Any questions at all, anything that you missed, you can email us at info at IHI.org. Don't forget that as of tomorrow morning, this show will be archived there along with resources. And if you know anyone who wanted to attend but couldn't attend live, please remind them that they can get the program here. The people who help make WIHI possible are Mike Sweeney, Jameson Case, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Vicki Minden, John Gauthier, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, and Matt Morrison, our Northeastern Co-op, Dina Cox. And we have some original music that opens and closes the program. And I've got Pat Matheny when you're uh, getting on board the program. And we're trying to kind of keep it real. And you can send your music suggestions to us as well. It's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving patient care most of all. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, thanks for your participation today. I'm Madge Kaplan. Have a good afternoon. Thank you.